On Making Waves this week, I'm talking to Dr. Misty Jenkins, a lymphocyte and cancer treatment scientist from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne, about her groundbreaking immunotherapy research. Misty has an impressive resume. She has an engaging style and breaks down the science in a way that's easy for us to understand. Immunotherapy is a buzzword these days and the talk of the town in research circles. Misty explains why. We recorded this in the early days of COVID-19 pandemic. The world was standing still, but Misty, her team, and her lab were definitely not. Let's dive in. Don't worry about a thing. Hello. Um, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is another one of our series, our new Making Waves series, series where we are taking a deeper dive into uh, some of the research we're funding and, and having conversations with the amazing people who are, uh, that we are working closely with who are trying to make a real difference for kids with pediatric brain cancer. So it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Misty Jenkins. Hello, Misty. Hello, Liz. Thanks for having me. Well, thank in you. New world format too. <laughs> in this new, absolutely in this new world format. So very much appreciate your taking your time. I thought for our supporters and our listeners, if you could, some people know you because you've been wonderful in attending our events and you've spoken at a few of uh, events that we've had that people have found really, really inspiring. Um, but for those that may not know your background, could you just give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, so I'm a cancer immunotherapist uh, running a research lab at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research, and that's in Parkville in Melbourne. Um, what people probably don't know is I actually have a, a PhD in infectious disease. I actually did my PhD with uh, Professor uh, Nobel Laureate Peter Doherty and Stephen Turner uh, at the what's now called the Doherty Institute. And so um, I have a long-standing interest in how T cells respond uh, to infection and also to cancer. And I think in recent years, we've seen this explosion of um, understanding how T cells kill cancer cells uh, and how they can also be used therapeutically. So that's really, that's been my history is uh, understanding T cell responses and, and modeling T cell responses. And in recent years, over the last decade, looking at how we can manipulate them, engineer them and use them, these white blood cells, uh, as a therapy in the fight against cancer. Okay, well, we, we, we were introduced to Ms. Thea, it's been a few years ago now, but we were so um, excited because we felt Misty was working on some really exciting research in pediatric brain cancer. Um, we have made a commitment to the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. We're funding Misty and her lab and her research and the researchers with her $100,000 a year for the next five years, and we're into our second year of that funding. And we hope it goes well beyond that. So just for our listeners, what are some of the things that you're working on that our research is helping fund? Yeah, sure. So essentially what that, um, what that generous donation has supported is, is work testing our immunotherapies 
in preclinical models. And so essentially what that means is that it pays the salary for the person day to day doing that work. And so this investment's led to us establishing models of brain cancer in the lab. And we've been able to test our new engineered therapies um, and show that they work. So it's, it's been really promising. We've spent the last two years establishing this pipeline and, um, and then just at the end of uh, 2019, um, had some, our first really promising results to show that this pipeline um, of research that we've generated is, is actually showing really uh, promising results. So it's exciting. Well, that's, that's great. Um, so in this current situation that everybody is finding themselves, the COVID-19 situation, how is that impacting you, your lab, the work you're doing, I, I see that you're at home at the moment. What what's the That's current situation? <laughs> well, I mean, as you as you and all your listeners will be aware, I mean, the whole world is currently in lockdown, and so what this means is that we need to spatially distance and not be around other people at the moment outside our family units unless it's to access essential services like go to the pharmacy or go and get your milk and bread. So um, what this means, I mean, the consequences for all non-COVID nineteen related research. Um, is that our laboratory operations have essentially ceased. The Institute has gone down to a very small number of essential staff only. We are all, we have all been instructed to work from home. Um, and so how does this impact us? Well, well, in lots of ways, and I'm sure in, in your household and every, in every household around, around the world, I mean, not everyone has a home office. We're all in makeshift office spaces the moment I'm in my daughter's bedroom some of us have small children running around while we're trying to make it work um, and 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 whilst that's challenging and, and sort of disappointing but there's still much that we can do and I think um, what's important to understand is that a lot of research isn't just done in the lab wearing a white coat and our PPE and our safety glasses there's still actually um, a lot that can be done from home and you know we we still need to take a lot of time to think to read to analyze data to graph up the results to write papers and so i think right now this is actually a good time for us to be concentrating on getting everything we've done so far in the last you know over the last year written up planning the next phase of experiments so we can be ready when this social isolation ban is lifted um, I think also the other impact the whole sector and I guess the whole world has been focused on is the levels of anxiety um, around job security. So the NHMRC, which is the federal funding agency for medical research in this country, they get 5% of the health budget. They've cancelled some of their schemes and, and delayed others. And so there's slightly less access to federal grant programs. Um, having said that, I think we're managing it quite well um, and, and we're fairly hopeful and confident there'll be no long-term impacts on the team. Um, so in the meantime, we persevere. Well, well, and that's, that's good to hear. So in terms of the research, I know, uh, and again, um, just for our listeners, just how does, so, so really what you're doing in the lab eventually you want to see being trialed in patients. And I know your work spans uh, across children and also adults, but just from a, from a children, from a pediatric brain cancer perspective, just how, how will that work? Ideally, the work you're doing now, what, how will the future look for that research? Well, it's, the simple fact is without basic discoveries and without research labs, there is nothing to take into clinical trial. 
It's as simple as that. There's nothing to test in a clinical trial. You can have all the, the money in, in, in the world to run clinical trials, but if you've got nothing to trial, um, there's, nothing, there's nothing to test. And so that's why you know, discovery-based research labs are critical. They're a critical piece of the puzzle. And, and so if they're not running and funded and operating properly, we won't have anything to take to the clinic. It's really as simple as that. And so, so you're right, Liz, in, in the sense that um, our work is, uh, is critical to support that, but also that then we connect and work very closely with our clinical oncologists and clinical collaborators so that we can then very rapidly be talking to them all the time so they're understanding what we're doing and our research is informed by them. And so that when we do show that something is working and showing very promising results preclinically in the lab, that we have a pathway and that we can be able to rapidly translate that into the clinic. And that's the ultimate goal. That's, that's what gets us out of bed every day. That's, that's why we do what we do, um, is to ho hopefully one day ultimately help patients and their families. And we hear a lot of a lot of talk about collaboration and how important it is. And I think people um, want like-minded charities like ours to be trying to work together with other like-minded charities, which we really try to do that and keep lines of communication open. And for yourself as a researcher, you're here in Australia. Um, are there other people around Australia doing something similar to you? Are there some international groups that you try to work? How does it work? Or do you work till you get to a certain point? Or how does that whole part of it work? I think the one, the one important sort of take home message on that, to answer that question is that science is, is a team sport. You know, we don't do it in isolation. It, collaboration, albeit locally, nationally, and internationally is critical and it's key to the success. Um, of every research program and, and, and across the sector. Thankfully, the internet has made the world a very small place. Within seconds, you and I can have this live conversation right now across different parts of Melbourne, but likewise, I can have live conversations with my collaborators in America or Europe. And so um, the sort of free-flowing information around the world and across continents has really enabled rapid translation um, of, of research and collaboration. So we're all working from home at the moment. Um, I've been in contact with my international collaborators in the US that are all in lockdown across various states um, and cities. So San Francisco and Boston and, and everyone's working from home and we're talking over various online plat video platforms like we are now and we continue to talk and collaborate. And in fact, um, I think what I've seen certainly over the last two weeks as this COVID-19 pandemic has been unfolding before us all, is that we've actually found we've had more time to talk and, and write papers together given the COVID-19 shutdown. Um, none of us are working um, sort of regular office hours. Um, we're all sort of making this work around our families' requirements and small children and you know, having to go and find toilet paper. <laughs> but, 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 um, and so, you know, quite often, you know, I can, and because of the time, that actually sometimes makes it easier with the time difference for international collaborations to have a, you know, a very early morning or a late night um, um, Zoom or a Skype chat. So, so the research isn't on hold. And I think that's what's um, really come out of this COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, we're working from home, we're doing things differently, but, you know, science, you know, scientists are very creative, like, like a lot of other sectors, you know, we, you have to think outside the box to solve complex problems. And so we continue to do that and we continue to talk and we continue to find ways 
um, to be productive and, and to keep moving things forward. Misty, when you talk about writing papers for the person who isn't in your world as a, you know, as a scientist, as a researcher, I mean, I remember back to my science days and you had the, um, you know, the, the little process you went through when you were trying to solve a particular problem or a hypothesis. Is it, so when you're talking about writing papers, is that what you're trying to do? And then you get those published in journals, so then people sort of build off of what you're doing. How does that work? Yeah, that's right. So when I talk about publishing papers, there's two ways of looking at it. So one is what we call a primary research paper, which is um, when you're writing up the results of your experiments and your interpretations of your data. Um, that's one thing. The, the other thing um, that is really that collaboration is really great for is writing uh, review articles. So actually saying, okay, what's the current state of play across the sector of ependymoma on planet Earth right now? Let's let's have a deep dive into all of the primary research articles and the data and the trials, and let's pull it together into one one concise review um, of the literature. And so those sort of pieces of work, I think we'll, we'll start seeing a lot more of them um, popping up this year as, as we see um, collaborators work from home and, and finding ways to be productive and continuing to, to talk about and, and publish um, our research and the research of others, um, uh, you know, to, to continue to educate and to evolve the whole sector. Okay. Um I know you gave us in the beginning a little bit about immunotherapy and about what that is, but when I've heard you speak, and I know people love it, you've got this great Mr. T analogy. Can you just explain that? Because I think people can relate to him and they sort of get what you're explaining, which is fairly scientific. Yeah, sure. So what, um, so what we're doing is we're engineering white blood cells. So we all have white blood cells zooming around our body all the time through our blood and our tissue and our lymph. And their job is to seek and destroy virus infected cells and cancer cells. And we know that in cancer patients, particularly in cancer patients with solid tumors, that it doesn't matter what stage of the disease you have, the patients that have T cells detected inside their solid tumors have a much better outcome. They, they do better. And so we know that T cells in your immune system plays a really important role in destroying cancer cells. And in recent years, um, we've taken that observation and, um, and begun to actually use T cells, these white blood cells as a therapy. Now, that, what that means is that we can actually take your regular T cell, your regu regular white blood cell out of your own blood, out of your own body and soup it up and genetically engineer it, like turn it into the Hulk, turn it into a Mr. T cell with its gold chains and its pistol guns and unleash, unleash this sort of new little soldier uh, to recognize the, your own specific cancer. So it's personalized therapy uh, turning up to a massive notch and, um, and it's shown, it's, a, it's an approach that's shown huge clinical promise in blood cancers, particularly in hematological cancers. Um, and we're, we're applying that to solid cancers, of course, and we're applying it into the brain. And so right now, when you're thinking about your lab and what's happening and your great team that's there working, what's exciting you at the moment? What are things that you're thinking, oh, here is 
either we're onto something or I know you travel down paths and you get set back and then you have to get, you know, rejig and keep going. So at the moment, what's exciting you? Yeah, I think what's what's exciting me at the moment is that um, we've spent the last two years establishing this research pipeline. And, and what this pipeline, if you imagine this is like a, a track, you know, at the start of the track, you need to know what to target. What is that white blood cell going to recognize? What is the key that we need to fit the lock? All the way through to making the key that fits the lock, to be able to physically manipulate those white blood cells so that they express that right key to fit the lock and then to be able to test their function or their efficacy or how good they are, how well they work in preclinical models. And what that does mean is animal models. And so, um, and then to be able to image those mice and say, okay, look, we've actually, this, this mouse had had a brain tumor, we've given it one injection and now the brain tumor is gone. And we're seeing that now. So, we're at, so what I'm really excited about is that we have successfully established an entire pipeline of making these new therapies. And I'm really excited about that because even though it's taken us two years to get to this point, now we know, um, we know how to do it and we know how to do it very quickly. We can now start to ramp up that program. So we can ramp up that pipeline and start plugging in new receptors and new tumors into that pipeline. The other thing I'm excited about um, is that we're using genetic engineering to tinker with these receptors, these keys that fit the locks and make them even better and more suitable to function in a place like the brain by dialing down the dangerous inflammation that can be seen in, the, um, in some trials. So we're essentially, what that means is that we're expanding our toolkit of what's possible and plugging it into that pipeline. And so that's something to be really excited about. When you when you talk about brain tumors in in these mice models, is it a certain type of brain tumor? Because I know there are lots of different types. So are you, you know, at this stage, are you trying to focus on one type and figure that out, and then you'll move to another type? How does that work? Exact. That's exactly right. So we've set up a pipeline um, at the moment. We've we're, at the moment we're getting really beautiful responses against glioblastoma, but. Because we, because we now have this pipeline established, we can now start to um, look at other brain tumor types um, and plug that into the system. Um, so we're looking at glioblastoma and we're looking at DIPG in kids or, or diffuse midline glioma, which is a brainstem tumor, um, a universally fatal brainstem tumor in, in children. And so um, they're, they're the two main tumors we're focused on at the moment to enable us to establish this pipeline. But as I said, now I think sort of moving forward and certainly after this COVID-19 pandemic, we'll be able to now expand that program to include other tumor types. Okay, well, that's great. And when you, you talk about this pipeline and getting it to the stage you're at, now, all things being well, are we, are we still talking years? You know, if you were saying, okay, here we go and we're getting some good results, obviously you're not gonna go straight to trying this on a human or children, I mean, right now, how, I mean, I'm guessing it's a long process. Is it, is it years, are you thinking, or what, what yeah, are you Short number of years. Um, so, um, look, it's, it, uh, it's always, that's always a really difficult question to answer because it's, you know, there's just, there's two, there are still a lot of unknowns, but, um, all things being well, and if everything you know progresses 
nicely, then, you know, yes, in, in the next two years, you know, we would anticipate taking this, this particular therapy through to the clinic. Um, it's just very important that we do all of the safety checks. So yes, at the moment we know that, uh, that it works. We know that we can kill brain tumors in mice, which is really exciting. I mean, that was just a bit of a eureka moment in the lab when we saw those tumors just melt away and just completely disappear. Um, and so now we're actually making a new genetic mouse, um, a transgenic mouse, so that we can actually have a fully, fully functioning immune system in that mouse that's capable of making all of that dangerous inflammation that you sometimes see in patients because it's very important that we absolutely test the safety. So we know that it works and now we're just at the next stage where we're testing safety and then we'll also look at um, some various combination therapies and look at our therapy in combination with other other drugs. And so um, so that will take some time um, to do those animal experiments. Um, but certainly I'm not, we're not talking, um, you know, we're not talking 10 years here. We're talking maybe, maybe two, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's well underway. Oh, we'll see. I, I am so excited just sitting here and listening. And I hope the, the listeners, I mean, hope is such a powerful word. And again, during this COVID-19, I see everybody just hanging on the hope of the researchers, many who are at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, who are trying to come up with a vaccine that is going to work or a treatment that if people do get the disease can work. So you, you can see how important it is. And I think for the brain cancer community, um, and I just remember from our situation with Connor, you know, he had surgery, which is what you want if you can have. And course with DIPG you can't even have that. You want the gross total resection which in Connor's case didn't happen and in many cases don't happen. Um, radiation does work but for how long and the damage that it does I mean those are things that you know are troubling but helpful so of course you're going to head down that path and then chemotherapy which really hasn't uh, worked for many many patients. So to have this as something that you're actually seeing some results is, well, it's, it's just fantastic. And we're so proud that we can be supporting you, Misty. Thanks, Liz. And um, I really, we really appreciate the support of the, um, the, the Connor Dawes Foundation. And uh, because all of those, you know, as I said, it's a team sport and, and also it's a team sport in terms of funding and partnerships and, you know, um, a bit, of, you know, a full salary here and half a salary there and a little bit here and a bit there actually adds up to create a team. And so, um, and so that's really important for us to keep the work going and it is going, I mean, right now, you know, our major obstacle is just the timing, getting back into the lab and, and continuing our experiments at the beach, at the, at the beach, at the bench. Um, <laughs> over, and I wish, it's wishful yeah, thinking. Exactly, we all wish we could be at the beach. COVID, COVID yeah, well, COVID, yes, exactly. COVID-19's presented some major challenges for us. We've had to pretty quickly move our workplace to a virtual one for the next few weeks to months. Um, you know, I'm working at home with small children sometimes is not ideal, but the work is not stopping. And, you know, we're all very busy squirreling away behind the scenes. And I think, you know, our research scientists need more support than ever before. And I think, you know, one thing, one good thing, hopefully, that will come out of this COVID-19 pandemic is, is that a public awareness of the importance of immunology research, the importance of our medical research workforce, 
Um, our scientists are working hard, you know, with less job security because it's the right thing to do. It's as simple as that. And, um, and I understand as well that we all get a lot of compassion fatigue, you know, um, there's a lot of charities, there's a lot of people doing amazing things in the world. And so it's, it's hard sometimes to, to, to know what, you know, where to, what to get behind. There's so many worthy causes, but um, I think that um, as we all readjust to this, this new world, uh, we're not putting our lives on hold. Um, and I know that we can continue to make excellent progress in the fight against brain cancer. Um, we're not giving up. Uh, so I hope that others don't too. Oh, well, thank you so much, Misty. And we are as committed as ever. Uh, this is, you know, we're, we're in this for the long game and there's going to be bumps along the road. This is obviously a big one for everybody involved, but that's, that's what's going to be, but we will get through this. And I'm confident that we as a charity will get through this. We'll have to be a little flexible, a little mindful during this time, but we are as committed as ever to supporting you. I just want to thank you, Dr. Misty Jenkins, for the wonderful work you do. I think people listening and watching will understand why we are so proud to be supporting your work again and hope to continue on for as long as possible. Thank you Thanks, so much, Liz. Misty. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Take care. Liz. Stay well. Yeah. You too. Okay. <laughs> Stay healthy. Yes. Bye. Bye-bye. Because every little thing it's gonna be alright